Uh, real quick, there's three ladies that are very responsible for all that happened last week. And that's Christy Damon, Aaron Westbrook, and Kim Kehoe. So could we just say thank you to those ladies who just crushed it last week with all those kids. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Eli. Welcome to Westbridge Church. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome those of you who are in our parent viewing rooms. They're great options for those of you who have small kids you want to keep with you during the service. Also want to welcome those of you watching online. Uh, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Uh, whether Also, single moms, this is your Father's Day too. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, whether you're a dad of a biological kid or adopted kid, a bonus kid, uncle, cousin, coach, whatever role you're playing that's steady and loving in a kid's life, I just want to say thank you for being invested in your kid's life. And so let's take a moment and give all the dads here a hand as well. <clears throat> when I was thinking about this message, a story came to mind from a couple months ago that involves our youth pastor, Chandler. Uh, he had just returned from a missions trip to Chicago, and the day before he got home, his wife, Heather, had spent the night in the hospital with complications with their third uh, child. And good news, a couple weeks ago, they actually had this happy baby boy. We got a picture here of, we got a picture here of Wesley John. Clearly he gets his good looks from his mother and his tiny little hands from his dad. Um, I had been, I think they're normal size hands. I don't know. Check it out. Um, I had been texting Chandler that day and just said, is there anything my family can do to help? And he had asked if we could watch their three-year-old and their year-and-a-half-old, uh, Paisley and Jack, uh, that Saturday morning. And that Saturday was already a busy morning because my mom and dad, my sister, my brother-in-law, they were already over. And we thought, you know, what's, what's a few more kids to this chaos? So we said, the more the merrier, and they came over. Um, so Chandler, when he got back to my house, it didn't take him much to convince him to stay for some egg bake. And uh, now there's a really good chance that when Chandler and I get together, there's gonna be like a lot of fun and like a little bit of chaos. So a lot of fun, a little bit of chaos, and that morning was no exception. Uh, my dog and my brother-in-law's dog were doing fast laps around the main floor, which got the kids running as well. And I had just taken the egg bake out of the oven, and I don't know where our hot pads are, so I use the cutting board shelf that's in the island. So I had just taken the, uh, the shelf out, I put the egg bake on, I turned to close the oven, and I looked back, and Paisley has rounded the corner, and she is running full speed at this cutting board, and it is forehead height. And I think in moments like that, time kind of slows down, and so I think of worst case scenario of, she runs into it, she gets stitches, the lava egg bake falls on her, so now she's burned and bleeding, and now she's in the hospital bed next to her mom, and me and Chandler are like, don't leave the dads in charge, like this is, what did you think would happen? And uh, in that moment, I lunge for her, and she's inches, inches away from smoking her head on this, and I get my hand right in between the cutting board and her head. To everybody who was in the kitchen watching this, it looked like I punched a three-year-old in the head, which knocked her onto her butt. But Chandler and I, we're celebrating. We're like, this is the greatest dad move that's ever happened. Like, we, we did it. 
But, but Paisley was not celebrating. She was sitting on the ground looking up at me like, why, why would you do that, trusted adult? And uh, Chandler picks her up and he's holding her close and he's trying to explain to her why the man 40 years older than her just punched her in the head. And I thought, you know, as the dust settled, like, okay, I think if this situation doesn't perfectly describe fatherhood and parenting, I don't know what does. Because a 6'3", 43-year-old has a different perspective than a three-year-old whose head is at cutting board height. I could see the danger that she was oblivious to. So, whether it's protecting your kids from their own actions or disciplining or instructing and correcting, teaching, whatever you are doing, it's all for the purpose of raising awesome kids who love God, love their friends, love their family, and treat others right. So keep it up, parents in the room. We thank you for what you're doing. Now, when some of my friends heard I was speaking this morning, they encouraged me by saying words like, let me guess, you're probably going to talk about CrossFit or you're going to talk about your leg and the accident, maybe community. And so I took that to heart and I will do my best, but I, I can't make any promises because this is the hand I have been dealt and you have also been dealt this as well. So um, if you missed last week's message from our friend Skyler, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it. Skyler told the story of Joshua and Jericho and he spoke on how you should have a faith that pleases God and keep on walking even when it doesn't seem to be working. And this week we're also going to stay in the Old Testament. This message this morning is not just for the fathers out there, it's for everybody in the room, so stay with me ladies. Um, a few years ago I had read this book called The Last Arrow and it was written by a pastor named Erwin McManus, a pastor in California. And the premise of his book is that when you come to the end of your life, you will not measure your life based on successes and failures. What will give you comfort is knowing you lived a life with nothing left undone, with no regrets. But what will haunt you is knowing what you could have been and never became, or what you could have done and never did. Now his book is built around this prophet in the Old Testament named Elisha. I said I wouldn't talk about me, but I didn't say all people named Elisha. So a prophet in that day was an, an individual who received messages from God and had the responsibility to deliver those messages to the people of Israel. The book of 2 Kings is just full of stories of how Elisha lived his life and the miracles that he did uh, through God. But before we can really dive into Elisha's life, we need to start by talking about his mentor, Elijah. Elijah now is one of the most well-known prophets in the Bible. Just to name a few of the miracles that God did through Elijah, he brought a widow's son back to life, he ended a drought, he parted the Jordan River, calling down fire on soldiers who were sent to capture him. There's also this epic battle showdown with 950 false prophets, and that's found in 1 Kings 18. It's an awesome story, and I'm going to recap it for you. It's Elijah versus 950 false prophets. The showdown is that they each get a bull, they each get to make an altar, and whoever's God sets fire to the sacrifice 
is the one and true God. So Elijah, being the gentleman he was, he let the 950 go first. And the story starts in 1 Kings 18, verse 27. It says this. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or relieving himself. Or maybe he's on the way, away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. Elijah is a trash-talking prophet, and I love that about him. But then it's his turn, and to make sure there's no doubt, he douses his sacrifice three times with water, just soaks it. And then he prays, and it says in verse 38, it says this, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood and the stones and even the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. So the God of Elijah wins. Elijah then, it says, he prays to end a drought and the rain comes. And then the author just throws in this verse that I love at the end. In verse 46, it says this. The Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot. He had just defeated 950 prophets. He had just outrun a horse. Elijah had experienced complete and total victory because God answered his prayer. And I think it's safe to say now that he's one of the most powerful uh, used prophets in the Old Testament. But just in case you weren't convinced, there's a story that's found in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus and three of his disciples are hiking up a mountain. In Matthew 17.3, it says this, Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking to Jesus. So Elijah is hiking buddies with Moses and Jesus, and that's pretty great company and should give you a decent context of who Elijah was. Now the story goes on, and in chapter 19, I'll quick summarize a few verses, which is King Ahab goes home, tells his wife Jezebel that uh, Elijah had just defeated her prophets and also killed them, and Jezebel was very upset, and so she sends a message back to Elijah that says, I'm going to kill you, like tonight. And verse 3 says this, Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. It was just hours after an epic victory from God, and Elijah, he's not only afraid, but he runs away, and he hides. And I think at times we're probably all guilty of this, of forgetting what God has done the moment adversity hits us. It also says that he not only runs, but in verse 4 he says, it says this, he sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. Hours after a victory, hours after miracles, he's begging for God to take his life. But God, our Heavenly Father, is about to teach him a very important lesson. And I think we can all learn this today as well, which is difficult times test our faith, but God always provides. Verse 6 goes on to say this. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. 
he ate and drank and lay down again. This lesson is for all of us out there, especially us dads, that sometimes when we're scared or feeling defeated or hopeless, we might just need a snack and a nap. (laughs) Most crises in our house are averted by goldfish and quiet time. (laughs) But difficult times test our faith, but God will always provide. So now we know who Elijah was. I think it's safe to start with who Elisha is. From what we know, Elisha is a farmer at that time and probably part of a very wealthy family. Safe to assume that his life to that point had been very safe and comfortable. But God was about to show up in Elijah's life and just completely change the trajectory of what he was on. 1 Kings 19 says this, So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. And when I read that, I want to say Snapchat every single time. (laughs) Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. So Elisha's out there with the rest of the workers, getting his hands dirty, sweating in the sun, putting in the work. And then something strange happens to him, and the verse continues. It says, Elijah went over to him, and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Now, the act of placing a cloak, or you might have heard it called a mantle, on Elisha held significant meaning. It was symbolic of the transferring of Elijah's authority to him as well as designating him as Elijah's successor. Elijah didn't have a big speech, and according to the story, he didn't even say a word. According to the story, he didn't even break stride. You've heard of drive-by shootings. This was a walk-by cloaking. And he just kept going. But Elisha then had a choice to make. He could stay where it's safe and comfortable, or he could follow Elijah. Verse 20 continues with, Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First let me go, kiss my mother and my father goodbye and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, go on back. Think about what I have done to you. I think Elijah understood the weight of what Elisha was being called to. And he wanted to make sure that Elisha was 100% in. There was no half in, half out with Elijah. Elisha then goes home and he does this in verse 21. He says, says, so Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. When Elisha killed the oxen and burned the plow, he was showing that he didn't have a backup plan. He was choosing his calling over comfort and safety, and there was no plan B for Elisha. Now, all of us in this room have some type of calling. Calling doesn't mean that you have to quit your full-time job and become a pastor or a missionary. Some of us are called to be teachers or parents or plumbers or baristas. What we are all called to do is to be faithful with the life that God has given us. And that, look, that looks different for all of us. 
So Elisha had one of two choices on how to respond. He could choose to stay in the fields where life is good and safe and comfortable, or he could burn the plow and have the courage to say yes when called and not look back. We all have a choice on how to respond. Our response matters. Sometimes we miss opportunities that God puts in our path for fear of leaving comfort and safety or feel fear of failure. For years, Elisha walked alongside of his mentor, seeing Elijah perform miracle after miracle, seeing him communicate with God. The Bible doesn't say how long Elisha was mentored by Elijah, but the estimate is somewhere between 10 and 20 years. For years, Elisha watched, he learned, he remained faithful to God and his calling. And he had seen Elijah get used in powerful ways, and he had seen God's protection and provision show up in Elijah's life. In 2 Kings chapter 2, the story goes that Elijah's life is coming to an end. After years of training and being faithful in the waiting, it's going to be Elisha's turn. But the interesting thing about this story is that even though Elijah years before had put the mantle on Elisha, he seems to be testing Elisha to the very end. Elijah and Elisha are traveling to three different towns, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And at each stop, Elijah tells Elisha to stay behind. And I think our lives are full of people who are telling us to stay behind, to stay where things are good and safe and comfortable, telling us that we've done enough and it's okay to quit. But Elisha chooses to be faithful and devoted and refuses to leave Elijah's side. They reach the Jordan River in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 7. It says, 50 men from a group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The water divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. Elisha's time was finally coming, and listen to how he answered. He confidently answered, Elijah, I want to be the most okayest prophet ever. No. He said this. He said, well, actually, I think we all kind of do that, though. We have that response of, we'll just settle for average in our marriages or in our jobs or how we parent. We could push for more. We could ask for more, but we stay back where it's safe. But when Elijah asks Elisha, what he could do for him. This is actually Elisha's response. He says, Elisha, and Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit and become your successor. Elisha didn't ask to be average. He didn't even ask to be as good as, uh, good as a prophet as Elijah, which Elijah had done some awesome things through God. There would have been nothing wrong with being as good as Elijah. Remember, Elijah is hiking on mountains with Jesus. No one would have judged him for that. But Elisha asked for it all. So don't put limits on what God wants to do in your life.
Don't put limits on what God wants to do in your life. So here's Elijah's response in verse 10. It says, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I am taken from you, then, I will get, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire, and it drove between the two, separating them. And Elijah was carried by a whirlwind to heaven. Elijah going out in a chariot of fire is probably the most baller way to go out and leave this earth. Remember, I think it was my grandpa used to say this, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my father did, unlike the 50 passengers in his bus. Elijah, his cloak falls, and in verse 13, Elisha picks up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. When Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River, or then he returned to the bank of the Jordan River. Now remember, there's 50 prophets on the other side of the river who had been watching from a safe distance, watching what was happening. And when I picture Elisha walking up to the bank of this river, I don't think he walked up to the river thinking, man, okay God, I hope this magic river crossing cloak works or I'm going to be so embarrassed in front of my prophet buddies. No, he, after years of watching God work and show up for Elijah, miracle after miracle, provision after provision, Elisha had no doubt what was about to happen. Elisha walks to the river's edge and says he does this. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And then the river divided and Elisha went across. When the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit rests upon Elisha. Again, after being faithful and steady in the small things for years, Elisha's ministry had begun. And he did go on to do twice as many miracles as his mentor, Elijah. He multiplied a widow's jar of oil so she could pay her debts. He brought a boy back to life. He healed a military commander of leprosy. He saved an army from an ambush and certain death. He ended a famine. He even did a miracle after he had died when a body was thrown into his tomb and when it touched the bones of Elisha, the man came back to life. And that's just to name a few of the miracles that God did through Elisha. But at the end of Elisha's life, there's this obscure story found in 2 Kings 13. It says this, When Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. He cried. Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his own hands on the king's hands. When, then he commanded, open the eastern window. And he opened it. And then he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow. And Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram. For you will completely conquer the Armenians at Aphek. Then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. 
So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until he was completely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. And then Elisha died and was buried. There's so many interesting things in that story for me. And that starts with, Elisha gave two open-ended instructions. Shoot the arrows, and that was a test that the king passed. And then he said, strike the arrows on the ground, and that is a test that the king failed. And it stands out to me in this verse that it says, but the man of God was angry with him. And I wonder, why, why would Elisha be angry? Didn't King Jehoash do exactly what Elisha told him to do? He shot the arrow, he struck the arrows on the ground. Was it that Elisha thought that the king gave up too quickly? Maybe it was Elisha thought the king was saving his strength for something else. The verses don't give much of an explanation beyond the more the king would have struck the arrows on the ground, the more victories he would have had. But I couldn't help but think that maybe Elisha kind of went back and thought about when Elijah was coming to the end of his life. And that Elijah was asking Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? And Elisha remembers not holding anything back, asking for that double portion. Maybe he thought about all the miracles God had used him to do and how that only happened after he gave up everything, after he burned the plow and had no plan B, no looking back. Maybe he was thinking about the years of faithfully walking while waiting, even after others told Elisha to quit. Elisha was angry, I think, because the king did not give it all. He saved his strength. And it wasn't about what the king did, it was about how he did it. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians 3, 23, work willingly at everything you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for, the other, for people. Other translations say, with all your heart, with all your might, heartily, heartily work for the Lord. But because the king had saved his strength, he only received partial victories. And this story made me think of the areas where I think I need to grow. Where are my life is good areas? Where do I need to burn the plow? Where do I need to stop looking back? We all have the same choices to make, which is we can either stay in the field where life is good and safe and comfortable, or we can burn the plow and have the courage to say yes when called and not look back. And it, it made me wonder, how many times have I quit walking one step too soon? How many times have I stopped praying one prayer too short? How many times have I quit right before the comeback? Right before God shows up? The road of life is paved with people watching from a distance, telling you, you've done enough. You can stay back here where it's comfortable. You can quit now. 
It's rare to find people cheering on everyday faithfulness in the little things. It's even more rare to have people who want to walk beside you on this road of life, walk beside you as you walk towards the river. There's few people that will walk across that river with you. And men, I want to challenge you here for a second because we have so much we can learn from the ladies in this room. They are naturally good at doing this. And if you don't have someone to walk next to you through life, to walk up to that river with you, to walk across that river, man, we have some awesome men's groups here. We have men's coffee that meets here every Tuesday. Group of awesome guys. We have serving teams that you can jump on. I can't think of a better spot for you men than on the safety team, making sure our kids are safe while we're in here. There's a group of about 70 men over the last three years who have done the fathers to fatherless bike ride. 100 mile century ride. And I can tell you this, it is not comfortable for me to be in that outfit. I was not made for spandex. But this group of men have raised money for some people that they'll never see. They've changed the trajectory of lives They've helped local organizations. And if you want to be challenged physically or spiritually, man, I can't think of a better spot than doing this bike ride. We're starting training this Saturday, so there's still time. I'll be out at the table after the service if you want to come talk to me about that. I know I've said today, burn the plow like Elisha and don't look back. And I do, I try to do that to the best I can. But I've found that sometimes it's okay to look back if you're looking back for a purpose. When I look back now, it's to see how far I've come. I'll never forget the look on my three kids' face when they walked into my hospital room. I said I wouldn't talk about the car, I'm gonna. And saw me for the first time after the accident. Three years, eight months, 30 days ago. But who's... Who's counting? I had zero idea how long I would be healing. Very few people saw the weeks in bed. Not many people saw the months and months and months of physical therapy or the hundreds of thousands, no, thousand miles on a bike or the years and years of rebuilding strength, all just to get back to where I was. But some did. Close friends, family, my wife, my kids, because they're always watching. I never got to Elijah's point of, I've had enough, Lord, take me. But when you don't know when healing is coming, it can be very hard to keep moving forward. But very slowly, very slowly, bones heal. Limp goes away, strength comes back, and life drifts back to what it was. Last March, my CrossFit gym did a workout competition called Friday Night Lights. It's three consecutive Fridays, three different workouts, and gyms from all over the world compete in this. 
And I hadn't competed since before the accident. Com- competed is maybe the wrong word here. I had not participated in this since the accident. And my wife kept asking me if she could come and watch with the kids. And I don't know if that was just to confirm that that's where I had been for so many years. But I told her no for the first week because I wasn't sure what would happen. She asked again for week two, and that workout involved running, and running is the worst. And so I said, please don't come. You don't want to see that. So week three, I had to say yes. Week three was a 12-minute workout, and I was in one of the final heats, and up till that point, everyone in my division, no one had finished the workout. So my hopes weren't very high. Now, Evie, my five-year-old, found a spot front and center, just feet away from where I was working out, and she was locked in on me, and she looked very concerned. (laughs) I kept trying to wink at her to show her, like, I'm okay, I'm not dying, but I don't think she was buying it. (laughs) I finished the workout in nine minutes and some change and Evie comes running up to me and gives me a big hug and she grabs my grabs my face and says dad you did so good I'm so proud of you and then she whispered in my ear but I definitely thought you were going to (laughs) puke if you are faithful in the little things and keep walking. I don't know when, I don't know how, but you'll get across that river. So let me ask you this. What are you gonna do when you get to that next river in your life? There's always gonna be a next river, another obstacle. Could be your health, could be your marriage, your children and you're sitting at the river's edge and it looks uncrossable. And there you have a choice, a choice to either quit at the river's edge and stay behind, quit before the comeback, quit right before God shows up, or you can walk up to that river's edge just like Elijah and Elisha. You can think back and remember all the times that God showed up and how he's been faithful to you. You can look at all those people in the distance who are watching you and you can grab that cloak and you can strike the water and you can say, watch. Watch what my God's about to do. And I know, I know there's people in this room who are tired who don't feel like they can walk another step. You've used all your strength and you've stumbled and you've fallen. And the good news this morning is that your heavenly father, he wants to walk alongside you. He sees the river that's in your way and he not only sees it, but he knows the way across. He wants your life to have purpose. He wants your life to have a double portion. He knows you are destined for greatness, but it's up to you to take that first step. 
I know there's someone here this morning who knows their next right step is to trust God with their whole heart. If you've never experienced the peace and the comfort and the healing that comes from having a personal relationship with our Heavenly Father, I want to let you know that the story of the Bible cover to cover is that God is building a family and he wants you to be in it. And all you have to do is, if you've never said yes to that invitation, all you have to do is accept it and follow along with me in this simple prayer. Father, please forgive me for my sins, for the times I've walked away from you. I admit that I'm broken and I need you. I want to say yes to your invitation. You're a good father who gives peace and comfort and direction and clarity. You help us cross those rivers in our lives where we see no other way. I ask you to adopt me into your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to trust and follow you. And Father, for those of us in this room who feel stuck, whether it's stuck in the fields where it's safe and comfortable or stuck at that river's edge, I pray that you help us to listen to your voice, to hear your calling. Give us the courage to move forward, to burn the plow, and to say yes to what you're calling us to. Help us to live a life with no regrets. And we pray this in your name. Amen.